0: I can't, or uh, won't. I can, but I won't. Um, just let that uh, that issue drop. Um, that existential issue of um, people that get angry at God or bitter at God. Um, you know, it's uh, sometimes we feel that when we're going through a really tough time or a difficult time or um, our faith is being tried in one way or another, we feel that the least that God could do is personally reassure us so that we feel his presence in a special way, in a way that, that we would from a human being who was consoling us. But that doesn't always occur, does it? It doesn't always happen. It's not always, it's not promised. Uh, What faith has to do is that faith has to tell itself the truth and it has to uh, reason its way out of those emotions, um, or at least the confusion that those emotions bring and the picture that they paint of God, and listen to what God has said and tell themselves the truth about God. Uh, that he does care. And uh, the reason I didn't want to let that drop is because uh, on Sunday, as I think you unfortunately know, because I rehearsed a little bit of it last week, (laughs) I was preaching on Gethsemane. And we'll again touch on that this coming Sunday. And so it's in my mind at the moment. And, uh, you know, one of the most powerful lessons of Gethsemane uh, has got to do with... um, the contradiction that there is between the father's power and the father's love for his son which of course is an overwhelming love and the fact that he allowed Jesus to go through what he went through. Jesus prayed to him that he wouldn't have to go through it. Do you think that was not a powerful prayer? Do you think that the father did not respond emotionally to that prayer? Who's that? Who said no? Yeah, of course he did. Yeah, of course he did. Um, But the father didn't answer it. Um, If ever there was an opportunity for the Father to grant a prayer request, it was surely then. (laughs) But it wasn't granted. Uh, It was necessary for Jesus to go through that. And in several places in Scripture, and I need to study this out more, but I've I've noted it, made a mental note, and then forgotten about, of course, uh, like we tend to do. But in several places it says that it was necessary that something happen. Have you noticed that? It was necessary that this occur. Do you see? And we're not given any more explanation. That's when I would have liked the Trinity Study Bible. That's when I would have liked God's Word here and then a, a little number one down here, God would write in a footnote and behind this is why it was necessary. Okay, because in my divine purposes and so on and so on, wouldn't you like to know that? I would love to know that because that would really help me on my faith journey, so I think. But maybe it wouldn't because um, maybe I'm misunderstanding what that faith journey is because we walk by faith, not by sight. And of course, what I want is just a little bit more so I see more. <laughs> And then it's easy for me to believe, isn't it, you see? That faith, faith that's real biblical faith isn't like that. So, anyway. And by the way, while I'm, I'm plugging my sermons, I might as well plug my uh, the latest video that I uploaded, uh, which is what is biblical faith? Um, and I do need, we do need to do some more, don't we? Um, what is biblical faith? And so it's a little presentation on on what it is and what it isn't uh, on YouTube. Anyway, when we enter into the life of individuals like David, we're entering into, um, if we're not careful, entering into people that we are all too familiar with as biblical characters, as actors on the pages of Scripture. And uh, if we just see them as actors on the pages of Scripture who just do what... The Bible tells them to do, then um, we don't really understand what Scripture is doing. Scripture is recording a history. Now it's a selective history, of course, but the history that Scripture is recording for us really happened. Sometimes we are allowed to enter into, at least to a degree, uh, the difficulties and the overwhelming odds that people face. Abraham at Mount Moriah, um, Noah before the ark, Jesus in Gethsemane, um, David at Ziklag, and so on and so forth. But very often what we have to do is that we have to stop when we're reading the scriptures and try to enter into that passage and into that story so that we become witnesses of what's going on and when we become witnesses of what's going on then I think we can perhaps Mm -hmm. understand not only the fact that these men and women of the bible had feet of clay like we do but also we can understand how we can fall and how we can get out of a fall that we've had. And that surely is uh, one of the, the best ways to use particularly the Old Testament stories. Now, last week I ended by saying that we were going to look at the Davidic covenant and um, I asked you to read Second Samuel chapter 7. 1st Kings chapter 17 and Psalm 89. What did I say? 1st Chronicles 17. I will tell you what I said. <laughs> what I said was 2nd Samuel 7, 1st Chronicles 17 and Psalm 89. And I know that if I go back to last week's recording, that's what I said. I said, isn't it? So I don't know what you thought I said, Marianne, but that's what I said. Did you hear that? Did you hear the the, the second Samuel seven bit? Yeah. Oh, you got. Oh, you got it all, did Samuel. All right. First Chronicles. Did I say? Did I not say Chronicles? Well, you first said king. You didn't king. Say, no, you said king. first. King. First, king. Arnold. Just Arnold. Just Arnold. Arnold. all right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Moving on now. Uh, I I have been known to make the Freudian slip, so yeah, I could very well have done that. But um, these these texts that we're going to have a look at today. Um, will help us to to understand something about uh, how to interpret uh, certain narrative portions of scripture and then show also how they were understood uh, by another commentator, okay, the psalmist. Uh, And then what we'll do is kind of we'll we'll, um, broaden our perspective from there. So, uh, you know the story uh, of David in Rough Outline. 2nd Samuel is basically a book about David and his reign. And it's divided up into different portions. The first part up to around about no, 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 chapter 5 is about uh him ascending the throne and that's f- the first years of his uh kingship. Uh then chapter 6 through something like 12 13 14 no not thir- 13 well, maybe up to thirteen—that's when things go pear-shaped. Um, that's that's David in his ascendancy. These are the golden years of of David's reign, and so you can see that chapter seven then is uh, is put in those golden years. We are before the uh, the mess of David's indiscretion. With Bathsheba, where before all of the the horrible events of around Absalom and Amnon and you know his family that happened by the way as a result of his indiscretion of his behavior and here david um, is seen to be the man of faith who is building his kingdom, he's built his house. And he's looking around and he realizes that the Ark of God is still in a tent in Shiloh. And he feels a little bit, um, I don't know, presumptuous in living in a palace. This is a a good, this is a godly and a spiritual response. Uh, This is a man who really does care about God. He treats God as a person, um, not just as an image or an artifact for the nation to worship, to bring people together. Uh, This is a personal thing with him. Uh, He really feels that he's let God down and that he can't, um, once he's realized this, he can't continue to live in the way that he's living and not do something about where God's living. You see? So that's, uh, that 's kind of the backdrop to this, and uh, it will will join it in uh, verse four, although the uh, the covenant passage is a little bit further down but but we 'll get the context as well i 'm not going to comment verse by verse i 'll just uh, make comments that are appropriate to the um, the material that I want to uh, study. It happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about, with all the children of Israel... Have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying why have you not built me a house of cedar? Uh, in, even in that uh, he is distancing himself from the pagan gods because they would build these pagan temples. Um, just a, <laughs> a footnote here. Um so we were in Tennessee a few weeks ago and we went to Nashville and Nashville is, uh, or, well, or was known as the Athens of the South or something like that. Very, very hard for me to see that but that's what it was called. And so they took that really seriously and they built a duplicate of the Parthenon in downtown Nashville and we went and visited it. And they even put in what the Parthenon now doesn't have, which is a statue of Athena inside the Nashville Parthenon. And uh, when we think about the uh, the great labor that went into this this amazing building, and uh, the Phidias statues and so on that uh, were sculpted, um, we have to understand that that. Building the Parthenon, uh, was built to house that idol. That's what it was for. So, the Athenians built this splendid temple, put it on top of the Acropolis, and uh, they did it to venerate their god. You know, it was one of the first things that uh, they thought of when they were in their golden age in the 5th century BC. But there's been, as God here reminds them, Several hundred years now since um, Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God is just saying, look, I'm, I, I'm not a kind of God that demands this kind of treatment. Okay, I'm not like those pain, pain, pagan gods. Perhaps one thing that he was alluding to is the fact that uh, he could not be bought off <laughs> uh, by being treated nicely which is by the way exactly what the pagans thought they could do with the pagan gods um, the, uh, a really important thing about the, the biblical worldview as opposed to uh, all non-biblical worldviews actually but particularly the pagan worldviews is that in pagan worldviews um, so, here's, here's a man, a pagan, and um, he's a pagan worshipper. So, he's going to um, offer a sacrifice. So here's some fire. In fact, the fire should be red because we need to make it realistic. Okay? So, here's some fire, and he's offering a sacrifice, which could be a pretty horrible kind of sacrifice. They sacrificed babies, remember, uh, back then and all kinds of things so he's at this altar and uh, they also build images and uh, Jeremiah talks about the fact that uh, they've got images so I'll draw a nice little image here Okay, it's featureless but you can fill the features in but here's an image Okay, I'm drawing it like that because images are dumb Uh, man made so he has all of this uh, this uh, pagan accoutrement he will have uh, a temple round the image okay so um, you can see that my I love art yeah I, I do I love art, but i can 't paint a barn door so anyway here 's a this looks like that that character from spongebob doesn 't it <laughs> actually but here 's a so here 's a pagan temple okay you can go inside there and you 've got this image all right. Now, what they believed was that if they say the right words, right incantations, if they offer the right sacrifices on the right dates and the right places, uh, that their activities would have a leveraging effect on the deity, the God in heaven, that they were trying to affect. Of course, their God was a God, small g, not a God overall, just a God of wind and fire and rain or fertility or something like that, yes? So, uh, this is a doctrine that's known as continuity. Um, It is that there is a connection between earth and the heavenly realm. Uh, And because there's this connection that goes all the way down, by the way, to the rocks as well, to the ground, uh, that there is a a chain of being between even the the simple rock and the mud and so on and uh, the deity. This means that with the right kind of uh, words, the right kind of worship, the right kind of um, initiation and practices that the pagan god can be uh, manipulated, appeased. Appeased by the sacrifice, then manipulated. Okay? So that's what the pagan worship was all about. And that's what it's about nowadays as well. Uh there's a lot of uh, Wiccans, Wiccan, you know, what are they called? Covens around here. Um, and they believe the same thing. Now, they don't have this kind of stuff, but they have the same belief. The belief that uh, we can affect the ground. We can use things from the ground or from the earth and use them because they have this this uh, link to the transcendent realm and use the incantations to leverage the the higher realms. Do you see that? It's a different garb, but it's the same mechanism. Uh, Tree huggers, the same idea. Really, it's the same idea. Okay, be good to Mother Earth and so on, because there's this, uh, you know, we can affect it, just thinking, what's that mantra? Um, think peace, is it? Is that it? Think peace, the bumper sticker. Uh, because they believe that if you project thoughts of peace and, and uh, um, positivity that you can affect the world out there, you see? Um, so, uh, about a year and a half ago um I was uh, taking our kids to uh, a local farm. Your wife was there and some other people. And um, nice people, Um, you know, I don't want to knock the people, but um, the the lady who lived there was asked, do you have trouble with rattlesnakes at the place that we were visiting? And uh, she said, "Oh yes, we have. Last year we had three rattlesnakes, but we talked to them, and we agreed that we wouldn't bother them, and they wouldn't bother us. Of course, Q.E.D. You know, nobody got bitten, so it must have worked. You know, I'm I'm overhearing this, which I'm glad that I'm I'm overhearing it, and she's not actually looking at my face when I when I'm." uh, hearing it, but uh, I wanted to say i never I didn't realize that rattlesnakes spoke English. But, <laughs> but evidently they understand it. But, but my my more serious point is this: it, it, It's that uh, there's that pagan belief again. Do you see? Continuity, that if I speak the right words, if I have the right kind of address to that plant, to that uh, that creature, to the tree or to the transcendent realm that I can affect it. Okay, That is uh, the devil, by the way, he, he has a, just a, he has a small book of plans, and he just reuses them over and over again, because they work really well. Um, so this is what a, a pagan would do. You see, you see the importance of, of the temple and appeasing the God and so on. God says, "Look, I didn't ask for this." I never spoke and said I wanted this. I never made a big fuss about this. He's not a God that can be controlled and appeased just by building a temple. That's what he wants to get across to David here. Do you see? All right. Uh, Evolution, by the way, is is a secular derivation of that. I hope you can see we we evolved from pond scum. So, <clears throat> it's, it's the same kind of idea. So, um, it says in verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth moreover I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own because they are a people and they need a, uh, a land and move no more Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision so Nathan spoke to David Uh, now what we find here is uh, something a little less than a covenant and uh, it's also a little less than a messianic prophecy isn't it although it's often used in that way and it can be used that way but only in a secondary sense if you look at it in context then what God is saying is that, first of all, um, you're not going to build my house. Your son is going to build a house who will come from you. And I will establish his house and his throne forever. Okay? That is, of course, remember that the, Div- the Davidic covenant and the um, the, the understanding of, of David's line is within the auspices of the Mosaic covenant. Because a king was supposed to be reading from the law and supposed to be someone who presided over the law in this theocracy, which was under that Mosaic covenant. Okay? We'll get back to the Mosaic covenant probably next week. Uh, That's why, if if he obeyed and did what God told him to do, then... There would be no break in the continuity of the the throne, all right, but if he sins, if he or you know one of his descendants sins, then God will judge him. but he says even though'll he 'll judge him, and some of the judgments by the way can be severe, for example in uh, leviticus twenty six it can be removal out of the land, it can be pestilences and and plagues, and famines, and stuff, as uh, as recorded in uh, Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 28, where, you know, you have the blessing and the cursing stuff, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Um So, it can involve that stuff. That's already understood. That, David already understands that, because he's in the law. But, even though that kind of judgment may have to proceed against a sinful line, God himself says that he will not forsake that line. Do you see that? It's in the midst of, uh, of that warning. Several times he says, your throne will be established forever, your kingdom will be established forever. Uh, kingdom, throne, that obviously is a synonymous way of talking about it. And David's response when he prays, uh, involves an agreement with that and taking God at his words. Notice verse 21. i let this thing pass. You're supposed to let ambulances pass, aren't you? Fire truck, okay. For your word's sake, for your word's sake, And according to your own heart, you have done all these things, great things, to make your servant know them. I want to call your attention here to the fact that according to David's understanding of God, God has just given or told him what was on his heart. So what's in God's heart has been divulged by God to David. How does David understand it? He understands that God means what he says. Okay? Uh, In other words, between what's in God's heart, as we said (laughs) last week, between what's in God's heart and what comes out of God's mouth and then what God does, there is always a connection. God always does what he says he will do. Okay? He does. Faith cannot work unless that connection is kept. Um, so let's go to the next passage here uh, which is in 1st Chronicles chapter 17 any questions by the way about that first bit no covenant there he hasn't said that he'll make a covenant but he's entered into an agreement hasn't he God himself has entered into an agreement but there's not a word about a covenant Um, And no clear messianic expectation, although again, uh, please remember, those of you that took the previous course, you will remember that there are passages, for example, in Deuteronomy 30, in Genesis 49, in Numbers 24, that are strongly messianic, Genesis 3.15, uh, these are s- uh, strongly messianic. He would know these, he would understand these, and he would be able to apply them to what God was saying and, and understand that at some point, uh, the, uh, the one who was to be, uh, Shiloh, uh, the one to whom it is given in Genesis 49.8, uh, that he would come. He would establish uh, you know the rod of uh, the rod and the staff would be established with him. Are you all, are you with me on this? Okay. If any of you are not with me, uh, you're not sure what I'm alluding to, then just put your hands up. It's, it's perfectly all right. Um, unless you were in the last course, and then I'll know you weren't paying attention. One <laughs> um, Chronicles seventeen. What this is, it's just another. Um, rehearsal of the same kind of episode, but it's from a different um, theological perspective. Uh, The books of Chronicles are written from a very uh, Judaistic perspective. Okay? The focus is on Judah. The focus is particularly on the house of David and so on. So, um, we have the same kind of stuff in the first two verses and then it says uh, verse 3 but it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan saying go and tell my servant David thus says the Lord you shall not build me a house to dwell in for I have not dwelt in a house and so on and so forth um, you have some of the same material that is repeated uh, and then it says uh, verse 11 it shall be when your days are fulfilled when you must go to be with your fathers that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Uh, I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Notice, there's no negativity. If he sins, I'm going to come after him. That's been removed. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So here, uh, the emphasis is more theological. Um, It's not necessarily just focused on Solomon. It's now on Um, the fact that David uh, will have a kingdom and it will be set up by God Uh, the mercy of God will not be taken away from it and uh, it will uh, will be established forever notice that, that again the interplay between kingdom and throne David in the context you're supposed to be, I'm supposed to be entering into the context of this he would have understood God to have meant a Literal earthly earthly kingdom and a throne that he was to be king on. Yes, that's what he would have understood. Um, So at this point, before we go to Psalm eighty-nine, you can turn over to Psalm eighty-nine now. But before we start reading it, um, I hope that you can you can see that God has built up an expectation. Remember what I said about expectation. Words build expectations. Words build expectations. Um, if those expectations are dashed, if the words that were um, that were uttered and that fed that expectation, if they were um, clear and seemingly unambiguous. But the expectation turned out to be wrong. The problem is in the communicator. He didn't communicate his meaning properly. He built a false expectation. Do you see? And one of the key things that I want to bring out in this in this course is that there is an expectation that is built up by the prophets um, that the... New Testament people Jews inherited there's an expectation that they have that expectation by the way is so strong that Jesus words about him uh, going to the cross you know being crucified and rising again it just didn't it kind of deflected off their brains it didn't really sink in I mean it just it kind of didn't go with what they're the Old Testament was saying even though there were prophecies that that included that it didn't go with the basic picture that they had and that picture was created by their understanding of the Old Testament okay Um, we're not going to go into in this course whether they were right or wrong to have that expectation all I'm interested in in this course is to try to communicate that expectation to you because they did have it they did have it they couldn't have had the expectation of uh, many Christians in the second, third and particularly centuries after that AD that was informed by their interpretation of the New Testament they didn't have the New Testament they didn't know anything about the New Testament they didn't know anything about the cross they didn't know that stuff Jesus, three times in the Gospel of Mark, told the disciples that he was going to be killed and rise again. Bing! Didn't make a, didn't make a dent. Um, they only understood it after he rose from the dead. So, please understand, expectation is a very, very key element in understanding uh, the prophets. And God raised an expectation in David's mind here. The key is going to be to, um, first of all, see whether this is covenanted by God. If it is, then certain things follow. And um, to see if the prophets grasp this expectation and repeat it. They don't tweak it but they keep repeating the same expectation. So, they build upon the initial promise. Okay? Um, psalm 89. <coughs> uh, I, I, again, it's a long psalm. I don't want to go through the whole thing verse by verse, but by all means, do. Um, It's obviously focused on David and his line. Verse 3 says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Okay. So 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7 did not mention a covenant. But Psalm 89 calls it a covenant. So it is a covenant. So that's where we get this idea of a Davidic covenant from. Okay. Okay. So, uh, remember that, that now we're dealing with covenant again. Um. And so, let's see some of the things that are, are said here. All kinds of stuff um, could be picked out. But let's say from verse 24. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. That's his, that's his power. Okay, that's, that's his uh, uh, ability to reign. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is in connection with the covenant, verse 3. I hope that you can see that there already what we're doing is that uh, the psalmist is transcending away from David, who lived before this, um, and he's now got his eye fixed on a, an eventual successor, a particular person who will inherit these things. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I, uh, will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Now, is that messianic? Jesus wasn't married, didn't have any children. So, he's repeating, okay, the Davidic line, the idea of a, of a continuing Davidic line. But he has certain promises that can only be fulfilled, actually, by Christ so he's remember he's writing within the phase of the of the mosaic covenant which promises these things and yet we also understand from Deuteronomy 30 and from other places particularly in the prophets when we get to the new covenant passages in the in the, uh, the, the prophets we will see that uh, the mosaic covenant cannot accommodate uh this person He's got to break free from the Mosaic strictures uh, in order to uh, accomplish what needs to be accomplished. But I'm, again, I can only zero in on certain things. So if you've got any questions about um, some of the stuff that we're covering, I'm going to address them, but as we move forward, okay? Uh, again, this is uh, this is from the Davidic... Uh, ideas in Second Samuel 7 if his sons forsake my law do not walk in my judgments if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments then I will punish them their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes nevertheless my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail so you can see that the language that's employed here in this part uh, definitely reproduces the language that's in Second Samuel 7 my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Now, I know that that's uh, uh, psalmic parallelism. But at the same time, I hope that you, you see that uh, what that parallelism, parallelism does, it, it, it says that the, the not, God's not breaking that covenant means that he's not going to change what he what those words mean. Do you see? He's not changing the words. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. His throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Now, I understand someone is going to say, well, what about the book of Revelation and the the sun and the moon? And there's no need for sun and moon there and so on. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it. But not in this course. Okay. (coughs) Um, What I can say here is that from the perspective of the writer of the Psalms, what is God doing? He's, he's giving a fixed point of reference, okay? That this thing endures. And so as that endures, so will the covenant endure. It's just an illustration of his faithfulness. And he does this several times in the prophets when he's talking about his covenant. He, he gives those kinds of illustrations. as mountains can't be moved and so on. Um, so what we find here in uh, in this psalm is that we find at least one really important thing. We find now that the Davidic promises, or the promises rather of God to David are covenantal. Now please notice that you have unconditionality and conditionality in the Second Samuel 7 passage and also in the Psalm 89. You don't have it in the 1st Chronicles 17 passage. Because the idea of if your seed sins, you know, I'll come after him. Okay, there's the conditionality. And that that ties into the warnings that are given in the Pentateuch about Israel going away and sinning and, and God having to cast them out of the land. And yet in the midst of that, there is an unconditionality that is repeated. God says, I'll establish your throne, you'll establish your kingdom forever. Then he mentions the uh, the sinning seed. And then he says, but my faithfulness I will not withdraw. Do you see? My mercy I will not take away from your house. So he repeats the unconditionality. Now why is that important? It's important because, uh, first of all, remember that the Davidic covenant, as we've said, is under the auspices at the time that it's uttered of the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant is a bilateral covenant where, as we saw last week, uh, God says, you do this and I'll bless you. Now I'll give you all this stuff. And uh, will you obey me? Exodus 24: Israel, of course, will obey you. You know, let's let's put pen to paper. Let's do this. Exodus 35: What are they doing? Jumping around naked, worshiping, yeah, golden calves. Uh, so much for that. But God doesn't give up on it. Do you see? But it's conditional, and the warnings of Deuteronomy 28 and so on. The the blessings and the curses that were shouted out between the, the tribes on the two mountains uh, and uh, Leviticus 26 and places like that what these are doing is that they are reminding Israel of the, um, the consequences of, of declension the, the consequences of sinning God is not going to sit by and allow them to blaspheme his name although he actually does for a long time, doesn't he? It's not until, uh, I think, 712 that the northern tribes are taken into the captivity by Assyria. It's not until uh, 586 that the southern tribes are taken to Babylon. So God is very long suffering. But at the same time, it's going to happen. He is going to act. He's going to act. Yes? Okay very good he really, he really is and that's a very good that's a point that, that, that we need to emphasize here this is the kind of God that we have uh, this is the kind of God that he is and I'm glad that he's like that because sometimes I really really if I was God you know I'd frazzle me I'm just I'm, I, I'm so fed up with me sometimes It's like, I cannot push this thought out. I cannot grasp hold of this truth. I cannot learn this lesson. I cannot be what I'm supposed to be as a Christian. Um, I know that that these things are attainable. I know these things things are, are there for me. And yet I fail constantly. Yet, I must tell myself in the midst of my failures that God doesn't fail. And that God is this kind of a God. Uh, if he can put up with Israel for hundreds of years, he can put up with me for 60 or 70 years. Okay? That's, that's, I think, hopefully good. Particularly because I have the blood of Christ that's covering me. So, uh, Psalm 132. 132. Uh, Let's read some of this. This is, again, a psalm of the Davidic Covenant, but involves other things, too. We will read all of this. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. What's he talking about? Specifically, what's this a reference to? The temple, yes, David's uh, heart to build God a temple, that's right, yes, good. Behold, we have heard it in Ephrathah. That's the place where Bethlehem is, where David is from. We have found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. That's what, <laughs> worship ought to be for your servant David's sake do not turn away the face of your anointed uh, your messiah your Christ the lord has sworn in truth to david he will not turn from it i will set upon your throne the fruit of your body if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which i shall teach them again he calls it a covenant Their sons also will sit upon your throne forevermore. Again, this is the same thing within the auspices of the Mosaic Covenant. This is the promise. The Lord has chosen Zion. Zion is a mountain where the temple is built uh, in Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow, will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. So this is a a remembrance of the Davidic covenant. It's a a repetition of some of those promises. It does have that contingency that's involved about the obedience of the sons and yet also involved here is this this oath of God. God has sworn an oath. He's going to keep it. In fact, something else is brought into this mix too. And that is because it's about the temple, he throws the priests in there too. And we already saw, uh, we that were with uh, in the last course, that is. Um, Those of you that weren't in the last course, um, let me just tell you that there is a covenant in Numbers 25 that is sworn with Phinehas. And that is an everlasting covenant of peace that God swears to Phinehas and his line. Phinehas is a Levite. And it has to do with the offerings at the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, and here you see he's bringing that in and he's saying that the priests will be clothed with salvation. They'll be saved. Uh, they'll be redeemed. They'll be able to offer the kind of sacrifices that a priest needs to offer. That wasn't the case in most of Israel's history. The priests were ill fit to do that job. Uh, why do I point that out uh, because we're going to come back and we're going to see passages where the priests are brought in again and, and yet these priests are righteous and they're doing exactly what God wants them to do in a temple and it's difficult I understand it's difficult for us to, to get our, uh, our minds around all of that um, and uh, I'm not going to help you in this course to do that. All I'm going to do is, is give you the information. Because I want, again, I want you to have the same kind of expectations, the same kinds of questions and answer questions as much as possible as the people in the Old Testament would have had. You wouldn't be able to put the picture together, but maybe if you are given the picture... Maybe you'll start to make some connections. You see? Rather than thinking you can read the New Testament into it and solve all your problems by spiritualizing it. Uh, Psalm 135. Just a couple of verses here that I want to pick out. It says in verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special or peculiar treasure. His peculiar treasure. And this was also, this is language that's used in the book of Deuteronomy and it's used also in Exodus. That Israel is a peculiar treasure to God. Uh, we see it in several places in the Old Testament that the prophets certainly uh, repeat this language the choosing of Jacob the choosing of Israel is not the Davidic covenant though is it what covenant does that relate to the Abrahamic covenant Do you see that the Abrahamic covenant um, and the Abrahamic covenant involves three aspects it inv- involves the land uh, it involves a particular people, you know, the descendants, the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it involves blessing through Abraham particularly, not through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob particularly, but through Abraham, the third prong has to do with blessing to the rest of the nations. Through you all, the nations of the world will be blessed, Yes. Those three aspects. Um, And by the way, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul never confuses those three aspects. Never. He always quotes the parts of the Abrahamic covenant that apply to the church and never quotes the ones that don't. The ones that uh, quote the other parts of the Abrahamic covenant and apply them to the church are New Testament scholars that are not reading the Bible. And not paying attention to what Paul is saying, but Paul doesn't do that. Okay, so uh, here, notice also that Jacob is Israel, and he's not here talking about the man; he's talking about the nation of Israel. And when you find this kind of language, Jacob, I've chosen Jacob. Okay, he's talking. God is talking about Israel. This is, was a, a familiar way of referring to Israel. Again, it's parallelism, okay, in the Psalms. And yet, he, he it's not unclear who Israel is. Israel is connect, connected with David, oh, sorry, with Jacob. And it's not unclear who Jacob is, it's the nation of Israel. So, well, so what? What's that important for? Because the New Testament does the same thing. The New Testament, particularly Paul, in Romans nine, for example, he does the same thing. He says, Jacob. And who does he mean? He means Israel. That's the way of referring to Israel, or a way of referring to Israel. Uh, go to Second Kings seventeen, and I'll show you an example of this that's I think quite clear. Second Kings seventeen. And verse 34, to this day they continue practicing the former rituals, they do not fear the Lord, Nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. Now here in this context, what do we get? It's a a, a denunciation of the practices of, of the people. They are not following the Mosaic covenant that they agreed to. This is towards the end of the book and they're going to get booted out. But notice that here Jacob and Israel are synonymous in the Old Testament uh, way of looking at things. Alright, now we've said that the Davidic covenant, therefore, is, um, is properly a covenant. We've seen that it involves the line of David, the seed of David, We've seen that it involves the uh, kingship, uh, the monarchy in that line of David, his descendants. And we've seen it involves, surprise, surprise, a kingdom. Uh, and the kingdom in the Old Testament is not a spiritual kingdom up in the air somewhere. The kingdom is on earth with geographical locations and limits. You know, Zion, when it talks about Zion, for example, in these passages, it's talking about Mount Zion where the temple is. Um, When it talks about Jerusalem, it really means Jerusalem. You know, it uh, it, uh, talks about Ephrata in Psalm 89. That's where Bethlehem is, where David was from. These are literal places. Okay, that's how it's to be understood. Whether these change is not our concern right now, our concern is what does it say? How did they understand it? Now, I did say, therefore, that even though First Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7 do not speak about a Davidic covenant, you've seen that these other Psalms do and so it is a covenant now, being a covenant there it takes on the um, uh, the hue of of a covenant and uh, again, this is where I remind you of the importance of what covenants are um, for we go to the Bible, which is a good place to tell us um, Let me repeat just a a few things. Firstly, that in all of the books on covenant and all the articles in covenant that I've read, and I've read many of them, um, there is one single question that's never asked. Well, actually it's two. But I suppose the main one is this. Why does God make a covenant? what's what's he doing what's what's he after what's the purpose of him making a covenant and the other one is uh, what were covenants for in the first place anyway what what do they actually do what do they ensure do they ensure anything when you see covenants in the bible with uh, with Abraham for example and uh, um, whatever his name is I can't think of the guy's name the king. Um, with, um, with Isaac with, uh, and the, the people who are digging the wells, you know, and he's trying to find a well that he can dig and he makes a covenant. Between Laban and Jacob, they make a covenant together. Between David and Jonathan, they make a covenant together. What are these covenants for? What do they do? What do they ensure? They actually ensure what they say they ensure. They're about what they say they're about. Um, And so, Jacob makes a covenant with Laban, because remember Laban was pursuing him, and uh, catches up with him, and and he said, uh, surely, uh, unless God had not spoken to me the other night and warned me, You know, I would have, uh, it was in my power to hurt you. Do you remember that? But God warned me not to do it. So I'm not going to do it. So instead, here's another idea. I'm going to have a covenant, make a covenant. And the covenant was basically, uh, that there would be a a rock set up, uh, which was a token of the covenant. And uh, it was that, uh, I will not pass throw over this line to hurt you and you will not pass over this line to hurt me. That was what the covenant was basically about, okay? And then they could part in peace. Uh, I hope you can see that's a, a pretty unequivocal, unambiguous, very clear covenant because the covenant has to be clear. Moreover, the words of the covenant don't have to be clear but the intent of the people... When they make the covenant and speak those words and agree with them with an oath, they have to mean what they say. So you couldn't have uh, Laban being crafty, agreeing to the covenant, and when um, Isaac, uh, sorry, Jacob's back was turned, he stepped over the line and beat him over the head. Laban understood that that covenant had to mean what it said. Do you see? Otherwise it's a waste of time. Covenants have to mean what they say. Because they have to mean what they say, they have to be clear and unambiguous. They cannot suffer the throes of ambiguity. Because then what's the use of them? Especially down the road. Someone says, well, he meant that. No, he really meant this. Well, that word can, you know, I mean, it can be confusing. So, the choice of words that go into the oath that is made is very important. And we saw last week, you know, nobody believes that God's going to bring a universal flood back on the earth again. Why not? Because it's quite clear, isn't it, what the covenant was about. Um, and in the same way, this is quite clear. The covenant that God makes is quite clear. Okay, it has to do with David, his seed, uh, the kingdom, the land. It's uh, involved with the Abrahamic covenant, as we can see. Thank you, Mikey. Um, And um, it has that character of a solemn oath. God enters into solemn oaths and why on earth would he do that? Because uh, after all his yes is yes and his no is no. Which brings up an interesting point which we brought out in the last course which is that covenants wouldn't be necessary if we all kept our word and we all meant what we said. We just agree to it and go off, shake hands and go off because we'd agree with each other. But we live in a world where There's prevarication and there's disingenuousness and there's a tendency for us to forget or even to lie. And therefore the covenant ensures, you see, that on these points there is absolute clarity. So you understand what covenants are for. Why on earth do these articles never deal with that? Never deal with it. Why does God make covenants? He doesn't have to make covenants. He should be believed, but we have a tendency to what? Not believe him. So God makes covenants because he's gracious, because we are thick and we are sinful. And so a covenant, a a divine covenant, should be seen as an amplification of a divine promise. God shouting. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. Do you get it? Do you understand what I'm going to do? I know the end from the beginning. This is what I'm going to do. Got it? New Testament scholars? Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Now we're going to the New Testament here just for some clarity on the things that I'm saying. I'm not going to the New Testament to read something, to bring it back as a template to reread the Old Testament. I'm simply going there for more information. Um, so Hebrews chapter six. <coughs> I'm guessing there, I'm guessing there. Uh, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Excuse me. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them what? What is it? An end to dispute. That's what the covenants are for. They're they're hermeneutical, folks. They're they're about interpretation. There must be an agreement on the interpretation. Now, because covenants are hermeneutical, you can't bring in something else that's going to cross that covenant and make it mean something different. Otherwise, there's going to be what? Dispute about what... Because if the covenant doesn't mean what it says and can mean something different, then there's dispute. If the covenant means what it says, that ends dispute. It says this, it means that. I can't figure it out. Well, that's not your problem, is it? God didn't put that one on you. So it says here, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, un- the changelessness of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That is, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And so on, talks about an anchor for the soul. And in this context, he's talking about, of course, the sacrificial system, and he's going to go in to talk about the new covenant that Christ makes. So he's talking about that aspect. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, which is also about Abraham says this, verse 15 Brethren, I speak in the manner of men though it is only a man's covenant yet if it is confirmed no one annuls it or adds to it and that's even a man's covenant a man's covenant, you don't annul it and you don't add to it well still more with the divine covenant and this is a lesser to the greater argument that Paul's giving you here i'm talking about a man's covenant but when i talk- when i go on to talk about the abrahamic covenant this this applies even more god is not going to annul it and he's not going to add to it and uh, you know when i point stuff like this out um then some people, they just go, um, you know, they've got all of these questions and they're understandable questions. Don't think that I, I'm pushing them away because um, I don't feel the weight of them. I do. They're understandable questions. Well, hold on a minute. That would mean this or wouldn't that mean that Or or so on, yes? But, But all we're trying to do is listen at the moment. What we're trying to do is listen to what God says and not try to put the picture together. At least not put the whole picture together. We don't have enough information. We're just listening. We're kind of, okay, that says that, that says that, that says that. I'm not sure how they come together, but I get it. I get what this... Uh, text says I get what this text says I get what this one says. That's all we're doing right now. We must resist the impulse, which is a very powerful impulse, to use our God given reason to, uh, to tidy up what the Bible's saying what we tend to want to do is that we, we see these we hear these texts you know from the Pentateuch and from the prophets and, and so on and we, we, we know what they say we know that they say things like Israel and David and the throne and the land and the temple and the priests and, and all of this stuff we know that the, it says this stuff it says it over and over and over again by the way by the end of this course you will see that it says it over and over again Over hundreds of years. Um, And yet, we want to take those texts and we want to gather them together and we want to, um, because we've got the New Testament, what we want to do is that we want to put them into a tidy box that will fit into our understanding of the New Testament. And if it won't do that, then... We will, we will uh, employ our greatest theological and um, systematic efforts to make it fit into that box, and we must resist the urge to do that. Okay, what that is doing, by the way, and and um, uh, I could bring this out uh, at another time. But what that is doing is that is putting human reason above the word of God. really is. That's exactly what Eve did in front of the tree. Oh, it is a tree pleasant to the sight. That agrees with God. Good for food. That agrees with God. And able to make one wise. That's mine. That's my bit, do you see she, what she did is she st- stepped out from under the, what, the, what God had said and because she was now in a position where she was reasoning independently of what God said, she could add her own bit do you see, and that's what happens there's this tendency to say, yeah I know what God says there I know what God says there, but I'm stepping away from what that says and its implications and now I'm going to bring my what I've uh, what I have um, no, no <laughs> it's okay uh, what I have come up with uh, what I have, uh, have uh, constructed and I'm going to make these things go with what I've constructed Um, and that—that that is what happens we have to be careful of that all of us have to be careful of that but I can tell you it's, it's what's called a deductive way of reading the Bible in other words you read it um, and you say ah oh, yeah that reminds me of this passage written a thousand years later to different people in a different context and then you just take that other context and you slap it on top of uh, the context that you've just been reading and say, ah, that's what it means. But it doesn't. It means what it says in the context in which it says it. And these prophecies and these covenants mean what they say in the context that they inhabit. And if you are not prepared to just sit and listen and not try to put it all together, but just let the Bible speak, let it say what it says, you are never, ever going to be in a position to reconcile the the Old and New Testaments unless you spiritualize it. And you will spiritualize it, you'll end up spiritualizing most of the Old Testament. Whenever the Old Testament has a voice and opens its mouth, shout out! the New Testament must speak. <coughs> That's what happens. And the Old Testament is no longer actually on the same level as the New Testament. The New Testament always trumps the Old Testament, even though the New Testament calls the Old Testament the Word of God and relies on the Old Testament for its own veracity. But how can that be if the New Testament must tell the Old Testament what it can say? Do you see that? how that, again, the deduction aspect of it comes in and messes things up. And for those of you who remember the rules of affinity, that's a C4 and a C5. The Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible doesn't say it. But it's something that we've come up with and uh, we have... Uh, Reasoned through to a conclusion, and so it's precious to us because we've reasoned it, and therefore, you know, we will knock down however many verses need to be knocked down in order for our position to um, win the day. That's what's happened in the history of the church, it really has. all kinds of different examples about, uh, you know, infant baptism is an example of that. Um, in many places, the Calvinist-Arminian controversy—they're really both as bad as each other. That's an example of that. Um, they've both got the proof texts, okay, but very often they're not reading the context and any verses that they don't like, they either reinterpret when it's clear that's not what they say or they just bypass. Do you see? Why? Because they are not prepared to just sit and listen and and go through the uncomfortable work of not putting the thing together. Just letting the Bible speak. And say, so, Yeah, I've got this piece of data, I've got this piece of data, I've got this piece of data, piece of data and I've not yet got enough data to know how it comes together but I do have these pieces of data and God knows how it's going to come together. Why am I pressing this point upon you? Because you'll have to do that. You will have the urge to shoot a hand up and say, yeah, but what about? And I will tell you at that time that's not where we are okay so um it's it's not just people that um uh a of a different view of mind some people who have the same view of mind have a problem with a new temple and and sacrifices that's a really common one, okay, and it's an understandable one and so uh Going through the Old Testament, we're looking at these promises and we're looking at these prophecies and the repetition about priests and temples and all this sort of stuff, Ezekiel, for example, and Zechariah. And then um, the urge is to say, yeah, but what about the book of Hebrews? And when you say that, because somebody's going to say that, not today, but at some point, somebody's just going to have to say it, okay? Uh, I will say, we're not there. We're not in the book of Hebrews. This writer doesn't have the book of Hebrews. So, what's the expectation that this writer is building up? That's where you should be. Do you see? If you try to import the book of Hebrews that this writer doesn't have and his readers don't have, then I hope you'll see you will never get the expectation that these people would have got by reading it. And if you don't have that expectation, then you'll never have that, um, that kind of um, humility, if I can call it that, to just step back and say, God, I'm not sure how you're going to do this, but I do know what you've said. Now, we actually do that with doctrines that we have to believe. So, uh, the dual natures of Christ. Can anyone explain that to me? The hypostatic union of the dual natures of Christ. Um, my subject is systematic theology, and yet uh, we can go so far and then we have to say it's a mystery. Okay? The Bible does affirm that Jesus is eternal God, but it also affirms that he was man. And is man. Okay? So, explain it. (laughs) You can explain it um, in one sense that it's not contradictory. You cannot explain it as far as uh, the mechanics of it. Can you explain the fact that uh, Christ is in you and you and you and you and you and yet Christ is undivided? Can you explain the? Um, we understand that uh, and maybe can explicate the uh, the threeness and oneness of God, the one and the many that's involved in the Trinity, and that there's no contradiction there. But can you understand it? No, of course you can't. There are frayed edges. You can go so far, and then you're going to, you know, meet these messy frayed edges. And you you would want to stitch them together, but you can't. They won't stitch together. You don't have enough information. It's the same way with these prophecies. It's the same way with quite a lot. Okay. What was the last thing you said? About frayed edges? Quite a lot. Quite a lot. Oh, quite a lot. Yeah. All right. So. Well, it just plays right in his hand he's trying to divide all the churches division and, and strife mm-hmm. disagreement and confusion mm-hmm. and anger yeah and the, and he did a bang up job oh, actually in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD by that time they were already teaching that uh, there were bishops over cities uh, over pastors you know that was already happening in the first part of the second century. The Epistles of Ignatius talk about that, for example. He died in eighty-one, oh eight, or something like that. He was that was being taught back then. I mean, the Apostle John hadn't been dead for a, well a little more than a decade. He almost could turn around in his grave. You know, <laughs> um, but. Um, that was being taught, baptismal regeneration was being taught by the middle of the second century, it was immersion, but you had to go through those baptismal waters in order to be saved, that was being taught why? because of this deductive you know, this this, this default that we have, and our default and we'll end here our default even as Christians, is independence Faith requires something to believe. It can, that, that thing it's supposed to believe cannot be ambiguous, otherwise we can't have faith in it. We can't be unsure about what it says, otherwise how can you have faith in it? You're not sure what you're having faith in. So even if your faith is kind of misdirected, you've got to have faith in something you actually say means what it says. Yes? Do you understand that? Yes. And so... Um, faith is the thing that anchors us to God it brings us back into dependence on God but the only way that faith can function in that role is if God means what he says do you see the great paradigms of faith, Abraham for example believed God and God accredited it to him for righteousness he believed that God meant what he said um what we tend to do is that we say well God says that but you know I've, I can put this together I know the end from the beginning I know I've read John Calvin's institutes and so on and I know how this goes together and we become independent from God not that you know I'm not knocking John Calvin but um, you understand the mentality I've read John Piper ok or am I, am I upsetting anybody here? I can choose somebody else to have a go at. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so, um, when it comes to believing the Bible, you might ask yourself, uh, am I coming to this as a listener, dependent on what it's saying? Or am I coming with my independence intact and just coming to see if it agrees with me. Because I already know what it says, I already know what it means. Do you see? But it's kind of, it's, it's an important thing. And the same thing, by the way, when we're going through difficulties in life, um, counselling people, uh, I, some of you may be counsellors, I, I, I do a lot of counselling. When I'm counselling people, um, that's what I'm concerned about, them believing God, not being independent of God. I want them to be dependent on God. Do you see? And I can only do that if they'll believe what God says. All right. any final questions before we... quit? Yes, John. Yes, our readings uh, in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicle, and Psalm 89 pretty clearly set the case for an unconditional covenant. I'm totally with that. But... In Psalm one thirty-two, which we read today, verse yes. twelve, it seems to be more of a conditional of the Yes, it does. Can and sure, that. my uh, maybe I went by it a little bit too quickly, but because um, in the in the historical context in which the Old Testament is written, the Psalms and the uh, the Chronicles and so on we are under the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? So, the Mosaic Covenant sets out all kinds of uh, promises from God which are conditional upon um, the performance of uh, the individuals to whom they're made or the, the nation to whom they're made. It's in that spirit that the Davidic Covenant is first given. It's given within the context, and you kind of have to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who's under the Mosaic Covenant, okay? Not the New Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And because there is that conditional, I'm going to boot you out of the land if you're unfaithful, and so on. There are conditions in this, um, uh, these promises in the Davidic Covenant that, that fit or parallel the promises of, of the Mosaic covenant. Otherwise what you would have is that you would have uh, you know, you'll always have a throne you'll always have a kingdom, you'd have actually have a contradiction between the covenants you'd have the Div- Davidic covenant promising kingdom and land and uh, kingship and then you'd have the Pentateuch saying but if you don't obey this covenant and you go away from me and you decline away from me uh, I'll bring all this stuff on you. And other nations will come after you and I'll kick you out of the land. So it's because this is housed historically within the Mosaic covenant that you have that historical lineage there. But what you do have is a, a promise that notwithstanding, at the end of the day, God will not remove his mercy from the house. What we need though, and this is where, again, maybe I went too fast this is where um, the promises of Deuteronomy 30, of Genesis 49, of Numbers 24, of this person. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 is uh, a pre-New Covenant promise. I'll take this heart of stone away from me. I'll give you a heart of flesh so that you'll believe me and and, uh, keep my word. Yes, so that's this one. Uh, this can only happen, actually, as we find out later on, if this is done away with. Because this can do nothing but condemn. Okay, That's where the book of Hebrews really does come in to help us. It says the old covenant must be done away so that a new covenant that promises a heart of flesh and so on, a heart of obedience, can be reintroduced. Uh, Genesis 49 is about uh, the one... Um, uh the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it is given. Or until Shiloh come. Okay? A particular person, he to whom it is given. And then Numbers twenty four kind of reiterates then. I see him afar off, but not now. Do you see? And it talks about his scepter. It's not talking about David. It's talking about um the yeah, the Messiah. Uh, and what you would do is that you'd you'd take this material as we did in the last one and you'd hook it back up with, for example, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will destroy the serpent and so on. And you'll build a picture of Christ while you're building a picture of, of uh, the nation. And we'll be doing that in this course too as we move through the prophets, uh, the prophetic literature, which is, we'll, we'll start on that a little bit next week, um, we will not just be building a picture of the kingdom and the promises in the covenants of the kingdom. We'll also be building a picture of Christ, the ruler in the kingdom. Do you see? The one who is to rule it. And so these two will converge and more and more information will come together and the picture will that's kind of unclear right now uh, it will be painted out more and more by the prophets so that all kinds of detail will be brought in especially when we get to new covenant passages new covenant passages tie these things together, they draw this covenant in, draw this covenant in and they start to bundle them together and show you that they are actually not at cross purposes these are different strands of the creation project of God. So that's why the covenants themselves are marked as their signposts to uh, God's purposes in Scripture. That's why they can't be contravened. You see? A lot more to do. not more to go. A lot more Scriptures to look at, but I hope this was helpful. Got you thinking? Thank you. We're not even got into the prophets yet, but I'm setting you up, I hope, hopefully, fairly adequately for an exploration of those texts. Next week. Um, so, I'd like you to read, let me see. Hmm. I'll do a little bit about Elijah, but you don't have to read. If you want to read First Kings 17 and 18, you can. Um, but then we're going to skip over and we'll start looking uh, at... Um, Where's she? I think we'll start in um, Amos and Hosea in those in those books, and then we'll start to go into Isaiah. Is that that's not enough, is it? That's too. Well, I, all right, all right. Amos nine. There's more but 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 Amos nine, Hosea two or one and two, if you wish, and Isaiah chapter two.